0: Jim, I hated to impose on you and bring you in here and make me uh, listen to me, but I had to have you here to share what I'm going to share in the opening uh, thing. And I just want you to know that the way I feel this morning is uh, like uh, Fred Jones felt in heaven after he had survived the Johnstown flood. He went to the chief angel and he said, Listen, he said, we're having fellowship on Thursday night. He said, I'd like to share the story of how I survived the Johnstown flood. He said, Angel said to him, Of course, uh, I'll put you on the, the list of the, the program. And so they came to Thursday night and all the angels and the saints were gathered there in heaven to hear the discussion of. Great testimonies that had happened uh, during their the time spent on Earth. And the angel got up and said, Well, tonight we have a special event. And Fred was eager to get up and share his story. He said, We're going to have Noah, and then we're going to have Fred Jones telling us how he survived <laughs> the Johnstown flood. So, following Jim uh, in the program is like following. Noah, and the program of heaven. Uh, there's a rumor going around that I'm losing my touch because I was only able to speak for 30 minutes the last time. So we're going to never make that mistake again. And uh, Philip, I'm glad that you. have learned to be stylish in your shirt. We're yeah. wearing similar colors. Is that it? Jack, is that a Tennessee color? <laughs> okay, uh, bear with me. Uh, what I want us to do today is talk about the rapture, and I gave the audience the other night kind of a teaser, saying that I was developing or working on the idea of a partial rapture, and everybody's—I saw all the antennas in the room. Uh, rise simultaneously and think, well, I want to hear about that uh, because I don't want to miss the bus when it leaves. So uh, what I want to do is go back uh, to some information I shared the last time I was here in spring, which many of you were not here, privy to uh, hear, and then I want to move into uh, Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, then I want to uh, move into uh, the book of Philippians and possibly end up in Matthew chapter 24. And if you don't know it, uh, we're going to mention at least four passages that have already been covered. So I'm going to be doubling up and duplicating some things here. Let's look at uh, Revelation chapter four verse one here. And I could, give you some larger broader background but I'd like to start with the text itself and we'll read it together after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet saying with me saying speaking with me saying come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this Now that is a very loaded, loaded, loaded verse. There's a lot of stuff going on there. First of all, the phrase, after these things, the first words of Revelation 4.1, of course we ask the question, what things is he talking about? And it seems structurally in the book that he's talking about the things of the churches in chapters two and three. This is a literary marker that starts a new section. And as we stated in other lectures, the next word is behold. Now, write this in your Bible somewhere, make a note, to do something to me, uh, make it uh, uh, very real to you or very memorable to you. Uh, the word behold always, always, always in the scripture me, meeks, meets or means or marks a supernatural divine intervention. There's something unusual that's about to happen when the Lord says behold in the narrative. So we expect to see something out of the ordinary in the immediate context whenever you see a behold. We'll look at see a behold later in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. And then I have filled in some blanks here I, John, was in the Spirit in Revelation 4.1. John is the last apostle, of course, we know that, and he represents the group, just like Daniel in uh, the book of Daniel represented the remnant that were in captivity. He was the senior ranking official. He was the one that was the uh, almost implied leader of the group. And therefore, whatever happens to the head of the group happens to the rest of the group. We know that because we study the uh, comparison between Adam and Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all they're made alive. They're just talking about one individual, but there's everyone else is included in the pyramid or the descendants after that. Since John was the last surviving apostle, he often represents the church. It often happens that one character, such as Adam in the Old Testament, represents everyone connected to him. And then please note in your text. There is no definite article. I put it in brackets here. John says sickly, I was in spirit. I was in spirit to be in spirit means to be in a resurrected spiritual body. So John has been transported through time to the day of the Lord. Not this uh, not uh, not Sunday. The Lord's Day, which was the very famous prophetic Old Testament day of the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing that I noticed in my study of this passage. The word immediately, chapter 4, verse 2, immediately I was in spirit. I think it's very intriguing and interesting for our purposes of understanding and interpreting that this word immediately is used only one time in the entire book of Revelation. You would think that there would be other chances and opportunities in just a normal narrative to say immediately something happened, but that is not indeed the case. Uh, so something happens immediately. And I would suggest to you that this is John's counterpart of Paul using the phrase in the twinkling of an eye in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. Now, he sees what? A door standing open in heaven, or in the sky, Revelation 4.1. Now, let's turn over to chapter three, verse eight of Revelation, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And uh, in the introduction, of course, we have the angels, and I talked about that a little the other day that these are really covenant lawsuits and the angels are the witnesses to the covenant who have the job of either executing the blessings or executing the curses of the covenant. They are the watchers. I personally believe that every church is assigned an angel to guard it, to protect it, to oversee it. And therefore, uh, the angel of the church in Philadelphia, which we know from our common knowledge here, was the church of brotherly love, Adelphos, Philadelphia, Phileo, it means brotherly love in Greek. Brotherly love and Adelphos are two parts of the original language word. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is a passage of scripture that comes right out of Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, chapter 22, verse 22. And it's talking about the steward, the chief steward, the maitre d, the guy who allows or prohibits people to go into the presence of the king. Now we have kind of a laid back attitude towards uh, seeing the king people talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in kind of common terms. Yeah, I'm going to see the king. Well, you don't just go to see the king. You have to go through officials and have an appointment, and you have to be admitted, and there has to be guards there, guarding the person of the king. You just don't bust in and see the king. Uh, And therefore, uh, this man in... uh, in, uh, the book of Isaiah was named Shedna. He was the uh, steward of the palace. He admitted people into the presence of the David king. And he gets reamed out by the Lord for digging a sepulcher. He said, uh, I just, the Lord says, I just said, said to you that I'm gonna send you and your people to Babylon. And here you are building a sepulcher, building a tomb in Jerusalem a, a gaudy tomb and what's going to happen to you is I, I'm going to roll you up like a ball and throw you into Babylon and then I'm going to replace you in your office by an individual named a prophetic individual named Eliakim and he will uh, control the access to the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic throne room so that's who they're dealing with that's the name the name of the suzerain in the suzerain and vassal relationship. And uh, then he opens in verse 8 and says, I know your works. And here's the word know again, Jim. I know your works. I'm intimately acquainted with your works. Apparently the church was consistent and persistent in doing good works. And as I suggested the other day, the quick and ready definition I have for good works is a work is a good work is good because it relieves someone else's suffering has to have the correct motivation behind it. It has to have the love of God inform it, but it's still relieving a brother or sister who is under pressure and in distress. So the Lord acknowledges the, the works. And then we have a word which is translated strangely enough. See, this is the word behold. This is the word behold. I have set before you an open door. If you mark in your Bibles, underline the word open door. It's a perfect participle in the original language, which means it's a door that has been unlocked. The key that is mentioned in chapter seven, I mean three seven is used to open the door And as a result, the door stands open. It remains standing open. No one can close it to these people. And I've said before you, it's an open door and no one can shut it. Why is the door open for this church? Because you have a little strength. I cracked up when Brother Ken had to sing that uh, him is this morning, our strength indeed strength is small. Isn't that what it said in the, the song? That's exactly what is being mentioned here. The church's strength indeed is, is small, but yet they have kept the word and they have not denied the name. And as Jim pointed out in uh, Matthew chapter 10, to deny the name means to under interrogation by the officials either Jewish officials or Roman officials to say I am a Christian or I am not a Christian. If you deny the name, you can deny it by words, you can deny it by works. Either one is sufficient. So, this church could be commended because they have not denied their name. And look at the unfriendly opposition in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Now there's three great enemies to the church in the book of Revelation. The first enemy was the throne of Satan, which is a uh, a, uh, term that connotes emperor worship. The throne of Satan was every year the Christians had to go down once a year to the tax office, basically offer a little touch of incense to Caesar and worship, worship the the genius of the emperor, and they refused to do it. So that was one temptation that they had to overcome. The second temptation was the depth of Satan, which was the Greek mystery religions, where they they would engage in sexual orgies with priest or priestess of the mystery religion, and that was supposed to be transcended and get you in touch with God, which is a variation of Baalism or the fertility religions of the Old Testament. And then last but not least, to go back to the synagogue after you had had left the synagogue embracing the Messiah of Israel. So these people persecuted the church at that time in history. And uh, the promise basically is in verse 9 that God is going to reverse the tables. There's going to be a time when he will make them come and worship before your feet and to acknowledge that I have loved you. Then in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly, or listen to this, without warning. Without warning is the Correct translation here. Quickly or soon doesn't uh, quite get the the gist of what's going on here. Then the exhortation in verse 11 is important. Hold fast what you have that no man may take your crown. I'm waiting to hear someone bring a message on on what it means to lose your crown. Everyone acknowledges that you can lose your crown but then what is the quality of life or quality of the experience that you have? Now let's go back to the slide on the, the wall. In Revelation 3.8, the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, is promised a door standing open. So this is the fulfillment of the promise here in 4.1. In both cases, the word for standing open is a perfect participle. Doors to the temple are open on the day of trumpets and closed on the day of atonement. In between are the ten awesome days, uh, the ten days of awe, the the high holy days of Judaism. By the way, yesterday was the day of atonement, in case you didn't know. Christians usually are more interested in Halloween. (laughs) Kept from the ire of trial. Notice again that this promises to the church at large because they have kept the Lord's command to persevere. Door imagery in the Old Testament. Doors are very important imagery in the Bible. Genesis 28, 17, Jacob says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. This is spoken by the patriarch Jacob. This place where I just put my head is the house of God, and there's a stairway, not a, not a carpenter's ladder, a staircase. A winding staircase up to the gate of heaven. Let's think about that for a moment. Let's go back there. If Jacob was a prophet and he had a prophetic vision in that uh, particular episode, if he had a dream, then he foresaw the temple of God on Mount Moriah. And there's some historical evidence between, the, among the rabbis, that there was two Bethels. Two, he, he was at the place of called Bethel, the house of Elohim. And there's one tradition that one Bethel was located very close to the Mount of Olives. The other was located northern, northern, north of that place. But if he was on the Mount of Olives, that general area, then the temple, The house of God, the temple, was going to be built there in the future. He saw the future. And then there was a staircase, a winding staircase, which angels traversed, taking the prayers of God's people up to heaven, bringing the answers down, taking the gifts and sacrifices that God had been offered on earth up to heaven and recorded and then the blessings came down. And uh, so when the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the earth, he came to Bethlehem, he came to a very close area. He came down the stairway to begin incarnate and he went up the stairway when he left this earth to go back to heaven. You say, wait a minute, does that mean, does that mean that I have to go to Jerusalem to go to heaven? My mother used to believe that. She never believed that you could go to, to heaven from Texas. She only believed that you could go there from Pennsylvania. Um, but uh, in any case, I thought about that for a minute. I said, no. Why? Because each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so we can go directly. The staircase is available to us. All right. Having said that, And the first voice I heard was like a trumpet. Connect this to Revelation 1.10. We have here an allusion to a trumpet. This suggests that the events happen close to the Feast of Trumpets, which signifies, listen to me carefully now. The Feast of Trumpets in Judaism and Jewish theology signifies the day of the resurrection of believers. Number two, the judgment day. Number three, the crowning of the Messiah Fourth, the marriage of the Messiah, and fifth, the hidden day. Why does no one know what day or hour the Lord's coming back? Because it's the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets is the seventh month, the first and the second day. And as we didn't have an atomic clock or a national observatory during the time of the Bible, so they had to wait until the two witnesses came to the high priest of Jerusalem and said, We have seen the sliver of the new moon. And he said, Okay, he got the two witnesses now. This is the beginning of the seventh month. <clears throat> feast of Trumpets is the only feast day that doesn't not, or that starts on the beginning of a month. And that's why we have that. The summons to the heaven or to the heavenly courtroom, the temple, the command is come up here. Interestingly. The same command is given in Revelation 11 verse 2 to the two witnesses who are both resurrected and ascended into heaven. Why is this? Then let's look at the promises the the churches are fulfilled in the 24 elders. Christ promises a crown in chapter 3 verse 1. The elders wear a crown in Revelation 4 4. Christ promises a white robe in 3 5. The elders wear white robes in Four, 4 Christ promises a throne in 321 the elders sit on thrones in Revelation 4 4 so more on the elders Revelation 4 4 these are not wearing the clothing from the song on Christ the solid rock only the church in the Lord Jesus Christ wear the have on this garment is promised to the one who overcomes in 3 5 the song lyric gets us in trouble sometimes the song lyric says clothed in his righteousness alone faultless I stand before the throne that implies that when you stand before the Lord you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ well that's good to have that available the only problem with that is the bride makes her own wedding dress the bride makes her own wedding dress now uh, when uh, We got married in North Carolina after having gotten married overseas. We've been married three or four times all to each other. Uh, And uh, when time came for us to have a formal church ceremony in in, uh, North Carolina, my mom and dad purchased Young a wedding dress. But normally, if she would have been back in Korea, she would have gone to a tailor shop and had her wedding dress of of her desired fashion or made. But in the old days, the bride would go and make her own wedding dress. And that is taught in Revelation 19, where it says the bride has made herself ready and she has prepared her own garments to wear. So I think we need to be cautious of being clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. It's further intriguing that both the participle for and clothed are in the middle and passive tenses indicating that these individuals have been examined and awarded the throne and in company clothing as a result of examination. Now, are we still all tracking together? Is there any questions? Okay, I want to answer a question here is the doctrine of a rapture only a New Testament idea? And I think this is valuable information. Like so many doctrines, we have the origin of the doctrine in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, we have the example of Moses going up the mountain and the Lord coming down to meet him. That's exactly the picture of the rapture. In Genesis 5:24, we have an example of a translation of Enoch to heaven. It says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This was repeated in Hebrews chapter 11. And then uh, this translation is even more famous than the translation of Enoch here in 2 Kings 2, 1 through 12. Here we see that Elijah, a covenant witness to the treaty that the Lord had with Israel, he as the ambassador of Jehovah, he's being recalled to the court of the great suzerain. Elijah did not just decide to fly off He was being recalled and that is why the Lord sent his personal chariot to bring him back because there's always two witnesses to every covenant and the Lord has this pattern that he developed in the scripture whereby one witness is called recalled to the court of the great suzerain and the other witness is preserved through the judgment. We have Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is recalled, Elisha is uh, maintained through the judgment, we have Enoch and Noah, we have the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, and the the apostles, in every case until the very end of time, there's a pattern of one witness being recalled and another one preserved through the judgment. And chapter 26, verse 18 through 21. Let's look at it. It's a key Old Testament passage. And look at the way I translated it. The nation of Israel is speaking, and they say, We, the nation of Israel, have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, given birth to wind. We have not accomplished any salvation in the earth nor have the inhabitants of the world been born again. That is a personal lament for the corporate nation of Israel. But look what God says in response. Your dead shall live again. Together with my dead body, that is the body of Jesus, they shall arise. That is a promise of resurrection. So the people say we haven't done the job that you ask us to do. But God says, I'm going to raise you from the dead and enable you to do the job that I have you to do. Awake and shout for joy, you who dwell in the dust, for you do. Here's a tie in to Royce's message the other night. For you do is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall give birth to the departed spirits. That's the correct translation. A continued, extended promise of resurrection. And here's the zinger for me. Come away, my people. Enter your bridal chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a moment, in this case seven years, until the indignation or the tribulation is past. This is the rapture. Okay, is everyone following me? Because some, some of the translations are mistranslated there. Uh, So, look at another one. Psalm 27, verses 4 through 6. A psalm read on the Feast of Trumpets. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after. Almost sounds like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.13. It's one thing I do. One thing I have desired of the Lord. What is it? That he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to behold the delightfulness of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Now, this could not refer to the temple of Solomon because a, a Psalm of David and the Temple of Solomon was not yet built. And then he says, the Solomon already has introduced, introduced the heavenly temple, which Solomon's temple was a copy. Now he introduces the time of trouble. For in the time of trouble or tribulation, he will hide me in his heavenly pavilion in the secret place of his heavenly tabernacle. He shall hide me. Notice in these verses, temple, pavilion, tabernacle, seem to be equivalent terms. He shall set me high upon a rock. This is reference to the enthronement of the individual on a rock throne after he has been judged at the beam of seed in heaven. It's a strange verse in the book of Joel. Joel is all about the day of the Lord. In 2.15-17, through 17, the priests are exhorted to blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call the sacred assembly, gather the people. Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies, let the bridegroom rule out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, her chupah. It's all the Totally out of context with the rest of the section. In Joel, this commanded fast is on the Day of Atonement, Yom In Revelation 19, we see the bride and groom leave heaven on the Day of Atonement to defeat the armies of the beast and the false prophet. They are dressed in white linen, which is appropriate for the Day of Atonement. And one more, just for you lovers out there, the Song of Solomon. Both Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament are considered to be married or betrothed to God. The Old Testament children of Israel betrothed to the Father. In the New Testament, the church is betrothed to Jesus the Messiah. And guess what happens? The wife of the son is designed to provoke the elder wife to jealousy. And that's why God is not a bigamist. He doesn't not marry two different women he takes a bride for his son. Since there's a parallel between the bride covenant with God and the Father and Israel and the bride covenant with Jesus and the church, we can draw a conclusion about it from a human love affair, the Song of Solomon. After betrothal, the groom and the bride separated for an unspecified period of time. My wife and I did that, got us in big trouble. I met the train every week, uh, every train for the three whole days of the holiday, and she didn't show up. I was very angry. Uh, anyhow, the groom went to his father's house to prepare an additional room for the couple. Jesus said, I'd go away to prepare a place for you He's talking to the bride at that time. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. It's a rapture passage. In my father's house, there's many mansions or many dwelling places. What is the father's house? So that term is only used one other time in the Gospel of John. In chapter two, he tells the, the temple wardens, you have made my father's house a house of merchandise. So the Father's house in John 14 is the temple or the tabernacle in heaven. Once the Father approved the new construction that the Son had done, he was told to go and bring his bride. He was to go without warning, so the bride had to always be prepared. In chapter 1, verse 4, Song of Solomon, the bride asked the groom to catch me away. In two ten and 14, the groom commands the bride to rise up, resurrection and come away, as we have resurrection and rapture to join. And I could go on and on and on in the Old Testament talking about the pre-liminary ideas of the rapture. When I was in seminary in uh, whenever, well, we were there in the seventies, right? right. Uh, they would teach that this rapture idea was something fairly new that was only re- re- revealed to the Apostle Paul. And I had all kinds of problems with that. <laughs> After I studied it myself, I think, number one, it's all over the New Testament, including in the Gospels, and it's all over the Old Testament, and just gave you a taste of what, uh, what we're talking about. Now, let's go over to the book of Philippians. How am I doing time-wise here? Lendover? Okay. Right on the money, money. okay. We want to talk about Philippians because when I was sharing the last time in the spring, uh, Tracy raised an issue with me, uh, which is good, which is what we want to do at these kind of conferences, exchange ideas and challenge each other to search the scriptures more deeply. He uh, he challenged me whether my idea of a partial rapture and it's back up to the Church of Philadelphia. They were promised an open door because they had kept the faith. They had not denied the faith. They had persisted in good works. So in some way they were dependent upon uh, the open door was dependent in some sense upon their performance. So that gave me a hint here. So we want to go into Philippians and make some observations here. I want to make at least five observations. And I must admit that I did not come to this uh, book of scripture for, to search out the rapture. I came here because I was searching about the intermediate state. Now. Do you all know what I'm talking about when I say the intermediate state? I'm talking about the time from the day you die to the day of the resurrection. That's the intermediate state. What happens to you there? Where do you go? What do you do? We all have some ideas about that. But I've been searching uh, scripture to find out what the Lord indeed says about the intermediate state. So I was not here looking for the rapture. I was looking here for a passage of scripture that everyone seems to quote when they I want to talk about the intermediate state. If you ask anybody about the intermediate state, they're going to go to Luke 16, a rich man and Lazarus. They're going to go to the thief on the cross. They're going to go to maybe John 3, and then they're going to go to Philippians, and then they're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5. All these allegedly talk about the intermediate state. Well, when Paul says, for me to live with Christ is to die is gain, and uh, what else does he say there? He says, uh, if I live only the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, but yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I'm hard pressed between the two, having the desire to be part be with Christ which is far better so the argument that comes to us oftentimes is Paul had a choice he had to either live or die if he lived he was serving Christ if he died he was going to be with Christ is that not what you normally expect when you read through this passage well there's there's some problems going on with that and we'll talk about them here in a minute first of all Let's get some greater, larger context on the book of Philippians. The the book of Philippians is unashamedly eschatological. It's unashamedly eschatological. It's talking about future things. Paul is preoccupied with future things. And we know that, first of all, because he mentions and brings up in the opening stanzas the day of Christ. He has mentions the day of Christ in chapter one, verse six. He mentions the day of Christ in chapter one, verse 10. He mentions the day of Christ in chapter two, verse 16. So immediately you and I are alerted to the fact that he is talking about the day of Christ. And the day of Christ seems to mean the day of the rapture. Not necessarily the day of the return and establishment of the kingdom. That has to happen after the day of the Lord. So, just hold that in advance, Hold that up in uh, tentative uh, understanding. Because no one that I know has proved that. Uh, So, he's talking about the day of Christ. But he's also talking about future salvation. Future salvation. That's review again what we talked about the other night. You have been, by grace, you've been saved through faith, have you not? Can I get an amen out there? Yeah. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. And by the way, it, since it's a gift, it's irrevocable. Think about that minute. Uh, that takes care of your spirit. Your spirit is saved unto the day of the uttermost. But what about your soul? James and Peter and other New Testament writers seem to imply that your soul is in the process of being saved. And uh, and I would agree with that. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, that those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God and it's condemnation to one group of people, but for those of us who are being saved, a present progressive idea, uh, it is a power of God unto salvation. So, salvation part two is the salvation of your soul, or actually the salvation of your earthly life. You do things now that will ultimately carry through on into eternity. And then finally, last but not least, you will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14, which is a future experience of the people of God as well. So, Paul has three uses here in the word of salvation, and one of them I think is mistranslated or misunderstood. Chapter one, verse 19, Paul has said, I know that this will turn out for my salvation, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Here's my question to you. To what does this refer? Context, context, context. Paul has just said that there's two groups of people that are out preaching because of his imprisonment. One group doing it out of love for Christ. Others are doing it out of spite. So, you have two groups out there that are doing the right thing. One group are doing the right thing for the wrong motive because they want to cause him more distress in his imprisonment. And he says, Don't worry about that. That's going to work out for my salvation. What's he talking about? Well, here's the deal. Salvation is a very big word, and it includes the idea or the concept of reward. So what he's saying essentially is the fact that those guys are out there preaching Christ, trying to hurt me in jail, or trying to make my suffering more intense, is going to ultimately end up at the judgment seat of Christ, that their goods, their converts, their benefits, their reward for their efforts are going to be transferred to my account. I'm going to receive the benefit of the hurtful behavior that they have. Okay, let's go on then. What does it mean to die? What does it mean to die? Well, separation, uh, body and soul. We become like Casper the Friendly Ghost except if we have a bad attitude like Jack, then we're unfriendly. When he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He ties two things together. He ties dying and gaining. And most Christians that I know will say, well, you know, the gain is being there, just being there with Christ, you know, floating around in the heavenly places With a disembodied spirit. And by the way, you will have a disembodied spirit when you're dead. I hope you believe that. I used to tease my English classes, we started reading Hamlet, and the opening stanzas of Hamlet have Hamlet's father's ghost appear. I said, How many of you believe in ghosts? Eh, Maybe a handful of people would would there. Uh, I said, How many believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Every hand would go up. And I would say, how are you going to get there? You're going to become a ghost, folks. Okay, stay with me now. What kind of death is Paul contemplating here? Is he going to get a gain from dying of old age? I hope there's a reward for dying of old age, but I'm not sure about that. No, there's a, another mistranslation going on, and I want to, And whenever I say there's a mistranslation, what I mean is I've checked in the Greek dictionary that supports the text, and I invite you to do the same. But I want to go and uh, steal something from, from uh, Jim, who almost stole from me this morning. Uh, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death right literally that saying being conformed to his dead body so what is Paul talking about when he says to live is Christ is to die is king? he's talking about dying as a martyr he's talking about dying as a martyr because suffering produces reward suffering produces gain and if you want some quotations about uh, gain you can look at Matthew 16 26 and 27 Matthew 25 17 20 and 22 in all those cases it's a reward Luke 9, 25 says, What profit is it to a man who gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Gain and profit in the scripture always is talking about a spot of reward. The Lord has made an investment in each one of us and he expects a return on his investment. He expects profit. No questions about that. Now let's look at some more what's going on here let's look over to uh, the same passage of scripture paul is at the judgment seat of christ here by the way verse 9 of chapter 3 he says and to be found in him the word find is heurusco which is a judicial word again it's the same word that was used in the letter to ephesus where the, uh, the, uh, they found the apostles to be false or liars. So Paul says, uses, he says, my goal is to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That is the salvation of the spirit. And then to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, It's the salvation of the soul. And then last but not least, the resurrection out from among the dead is the salvation of the body. It's all centered upon the judgment seat of Christ. But look in verse eight. But indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as crap. That's that's the meaning of that word. It's rubbish. It's kubala. It's, it's our modern contemporary word movement. That economist crap. that I may gain Christ. Now I've heard preachers do a song and dance in the pulpit about what it means to gain Christ. We have Christ already. We're in Christ. You don't gain Christ, but you indeed gain what Christ gives. <coughs> He gives you a share of the inheritance. This is what is called the figure of speech metonymy, where Christ is put for what he hands out or what he gives. And there's more inheritance language going on in this passage than we can deal with right now. So, the word gain simply means that we're going to die as martyrs, as Paul said, and we're going to gain something because of it in uh, the passage that we're looking at he's conformed to his dead body and then what happens over in chapter 3 verse 21 he says lord's coming back He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body those two complement each other if you have the body the bruised and battered body of christ if you're martyred if you're suffered uh for the lord then you're going to get a glorified body. Look what he says over here in chapter 1, verse, uh, let's see, uh, 29. He says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. If you're suffering for Christ's sake now, it's a gift. It's a privilege that has been given to you. So that you can be exalted in due time. So, Paul was striving to be conformed to his dead body. He was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to be beheaded for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing, and then we'll close. Are we doing time-wise? Have I exhausted you yet? You got blisters on your seat yet? Yeah. Uh, there's two more things that we need to incorporate here and by the way this is a work in progress in this book I've been trying to write an article about this specific issue and it's terribly difficult because there's so much going on in here but I think uh, if we focus here then we have to ask this question Paul says brethren I do not have I do not count myself to have a apprehended it, that is, attained to the resurrection out from the dead, verse 11, that, that means essentially that someone gets risen from, raised from the dead and all the rest stay dead. That's what's unique about that phraseology there And what I would suggest to you that that applies, at least in kernel form, a partial rapture. let me press on with this verse 14 of chapter three i press towards the goal it's the goal at the end of the uh racetrack in the olympian games i press on the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus grammar there tells us or does not is not violated by the idea that the prize is the upward call. It's a ge- exegetical ex- 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 genitive. The prize is the upward call. So Paul says, "I don't want to miss the rapture. I want to be taken when the Lord descends and raises us from the dead." So consider those things, and then one more thing: prize is the upper call, and. Uh, Attaining to the out-resurrection of the dead. Luke 20, verse 15 says, Pray that you would be worthy to attain that age and the resurrection out from the dead. And then to tie it together with what Philip said in Acts 26, 7, Our 12 tribes hope to attain to this. Attaining, attaining language here, Paul says, I haven't attained it yet or I'm not already perfected by press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Uh, This attaining language is, according to the Greek dictionary, talking about attaining the inheritance. Attaining the inheritance. It's an effort. It's something that is required. And what is required is to get rid of the crap in our lives. What is the crap? Well, over here in chapter 3, verse 4 and so, it tells us what it is. First of all, there's things over which you have no control. Circumcised each day, the stock of Israel, of tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Many of those things you have no control. If you're born beautiful, great. Thank God for it, but don't depend upon it. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, wisdom, or the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, there's a gain word again. These I have counted lost for Christ. Indeed I count all things as lost for Christ. So what Paul is asking us to do there is trade earthly gain for God's approval. Everything that he, everything he had, his credentials, the size of his church, the efforts he made, things like that, prior to coming to Christ, he just burned up and threw out the window. Because you stand or you fall because of your knowledge and experience of Christ in his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So what can I leave you with here? I'd like to go over to uh, Brother Leroy's message and finish out with that, but I'm running out of time. We have looked at uh, the question whether or not the rapture is partial or whether it's 100%. If it's partial, then that explains a lot of things to me. If it's partial, then it explains what to do about the carnal christian because if a person names the name of christ never fellowships never joins a church never participates in the lord's supper never gets baptized then the question is what's going to happen to him? well he's going to at least lose his crown because so what does that mean it means that he goes into the tribulation after the rapture occurs and then he is a part of that great cloud of witnesses that get saved during the tribulation and the angel told the, uh, the uh, apostle john said they have made their robes white in the blood of the land god's going to get them there but they're going to have to go the hard way the difficult way now let's pray father i feel a lack of confidence in my ability to communicate this morning but i pray that i sow seeds of thought and comparisons and analysis that will be very helpful to the body of believers here help us always be persevering practicing brotherly love that will guarantee us a place in the rapture